Let's just pray for our time here, and then we'll, we'll open it up. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that your spirit would rest on us, God, and that you would grow us in a love for the truth as we have this Q&A time. Father, we just acknowledge our complete dependence on you. We need you to come and, and guide us and lead us in the narrow path. God, we pray that both the questions and the answers and uh, our, our search together for you, God, would be a sweet, pleasing aroma to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So uh, just because we know there are probably a lot of questions, uh, just to make sure things flow well, we up here are going to do our best to uh, try to keep our answers succinct enough to where we can allow for more time with other questions. So uh, there may be times where uh, the Lord really has different things he might want to do through several, uh, but on, on, on most cases we're going to try to, to do the best to uh, give a concise answer if we can. I know it's sometimes, you know, with big questions, you know, trying to figure out, you know, where do we, where do we start with that uh, can be a challenge, but we're going to, we'll do our best to do that, God willing. And, and so uh, we'll open it up uh, for questions, similar format to what we did yesterday. So, uh, okay. I'm Ryan. Um, so I just had a question about, Tim, specifically, you were talking about, you know, the storm that's coming. Um, I live in a city that really claims, like, the city of refuge, like, prophetic word that we're going to be a city of refuge. Um, and so they they embrace the, the idea of a coming storm, but not necessarily for our city in full. Um, and... But for someone like me, necessarily, who doesn't understand all the prophetic words and all those things, it's kind of a harder thing for me to embrace personally, or I just don't feel as if um, it's uh, a conviction of, of mine. And then there's that thing of like looking like a skeptic. How, how would you guys walk that out as far as people that love Jesus, um, that you're in fellowship with, that are grabbing a hold of that, but you yourselves, you yourself m might not necessarily um, th think that because, you know, I mean, a lot of places are probably saying that about themselves. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So um, tell me if I'm right in hearing your question. I'm kind of hearing two questions. What about regions of refuge in the last days? And the question is how to relate to people that you have differences with in the midst of some of these topics. Um, as far as just brothers and sisters in Christ right. that are, are really claiming that for where we live, but necessarily yourselves, you, you might not think that that's the case, and how to relate with them in, in that. And, right. and even, even if it is, how to, uh, how to look towards that being okay. where, you, where it will be. I'll give just a, my two cents on the region of refuge thing and you guys, as you guys think of anything you might want to add. The thing is, you know, when you're looking at end times scriptures, uh, 
there are there's a there's a range of data. There's data, for example, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, into you know those destined for captivity into captivity they'll go, so on and so forth. Those destined for the sword to the sword they'll go. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. Um, and so you have those kinds of admonishments. And then you also have other passages that seem to indicate some ni- Psalm 91 type of reality where I'm abiding in the Lord. I've been, you know, some, and, and in the midst of a context of judgment, he does make some kind of distinctions. You know, there's like, like he did with Lot in Sodom, right? Like he actually got Lot out of the cities and sent him to a little tiny town called Zor. Okay? Now, the thing is, by place... So, let me, give you an, let me give you an example. Within the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, you have admonishments such as that given to the church of Smyrna, which says, Don't be afraid what you're about to suffer. I'll tell you, the devil put some of you into prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. So you've got that admonishment to that church. And then you go to the church in Philadelphia. And he says, Since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you out from the midst of the hour of trial. It, the, the preposition is ek there. It kind of has the sense of out from the midst of, kind of like that Sodom and Gomorrah. Out from the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah. God rescued Lot. Okay? I'll keep you out from the midst of the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live upon the earth. And so you have this one sense of God as making a point as to who his are and whose aren't his. He sometimes preserves his in the midst of the storm. And then you've got others where it seems that God is saying, hold on, because your stripes are going to be my declaration of mercy to your persecutors. Okay? And so um, the way I kind of steward that is that John 21 Peter, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna get, you're gonna get killed, and then John, what, what about him? What's that to you? <laughs> okay, I think we have to trust the Lord, no matter what our particular destiny is in the drama. See what I'm saying? And we need to also realize that if, if the, in these places of refuge, that does not mean that you're going fishing and roasting marshmallows while the rest of the world is under going through the being in birth pains unto the final birth pains. See what I'm saying? Like, these places of refuge are going to probably be made up of international bodies of Gentiles that are fleeing as refugees to those places. So there's lots of brokenness. And they're coming, and they're, you know, as they're accepting the gospel, they're becoming God's means of putting a cruci- you know, Christ crucified on display. Ultimately, for some of the things Jimmy was talking about, you know, you've got Jews fleeing <laughs> to these places. This is not just like we get a free ride while the rest of the world is coming under the, the fire. So I'll say that about the city of refuge thing. Anything you guys want to add? Do you need that? What, what city? <laughs> For, I mean, particularly, normally in our human nature, that's kind of our train of thought, you know, more, more of that. And it's a big propagation uh, in the body of Christ. And um, in talking about end times, 
normally we kind of follow that train of thought to, oh, well, is our city going to be a city of refuge? Or are we going to pray until God declares our city to be a city of refuge? And in, particularly in like Zechariah 14, you have God obviously divinely protecting Jews because half of the city becomes exiled, but half of them are left in it. So you have this obvious divine hand of God protecting his people from complete extermination. Um, Jesus says that same thing in Matthew 24. You know, if this continued too long, everyone would be cut off. Um, but in the context of, of the cross and the end game and the witness of the church being martyrdom, um, I'm always encouraged to, to try and steer myself more towards that end game and think, I really hope the Lord provides some Goshens. Um, I think that principle is clear in the judgments of God. Um, I wonder if it will particularly be uh, for Jews, specifically and Gentiles that are helping Jews, rather than just some type of charismatic reality that happens on the earth during those times. But I think if we gear our minds more towards the witness of martyrdom and the witness of the church and the provocation of Israel being the laying down of our lives, then we set ourselves more firmly to, to stand in those days when our city's not a city of refuge. You guys have an abundance of those Asian carp in the river, right? You can just eat those. Um, uh, right? They're just like... Uh, here's my question. is What is the fruit of those that say our city is a uh, city of refuge? Is it passivity and just like, oh, we're, we're safe? Or are they preparing unto the gospel to be a city of refuge for others? What, in your experience, what are you finding? Okay, so they're preparing unto being a city, city of refuge. <clears throat> I think that's fantastic. If it's, if, to me, um, in an age of preppers, if people are geared toward preparing primarily out of self-preservation and fear, uh, you know, then there's the potential they're in a very dangerous place. But if people are preparing with a gospel-oriented idea in mind of being a city of refuge, I think it's fantastic. And, you know, as in all things, if the Lord didn't speak to you that that's, it's going to be a city of refuge, you know, you know, people, like you said, it could just be someone saying, you know, rah, 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 Peoria, you know, we're going to be a city of refuge and, you know, our team's going to win the Super Bowl or whatever. Um, <laughs> a general rule for all of life is, okay, hope for the best, wonderful, but be prepared for the worst. I think that's just wisdom across the boards, particularly in light of the fact that the overwhelming primary emphasis of the end times is a fairly negative time. It's not to say there's not that reality of refuges and so forth, but by and large, prepare for the worst. You know, it's okay to hope for the best, but as long as the preparation is unto the gospel, then I think, you know, that's definitely the right approach to take. And on your question of relating to people, we're actually going to talk a little bit about that at the where to from here. So, <laughs> so yeah. After the solemn assembly, so. Can I add something? Okay. There are also different ideas of what preparation is, even if you do believe in, in a city of refuge kind of idea, uh, whether it be just kind of more Holy Spirit activity or. So, but, but you need a, a theology of the cross, a theology of uh, being found with righteousness, which is only in Christ Jesus alone. So just kind of having 
a city of refuge, a refuge kind of preservation kind of idea. Just keep that in mind that real preparation has to do with what was provided at the cross and nothing is guaranteed. And so we need to solidify all the saints, whether it be in a, anywhere, it's in the, in the theology of the cross. That's good. Okay, I th- saw Clint's hand. Thank you guys for everything you brought so far. In light of uh, Jesus' call to the Great Commission, which we all want to be about, uh, and Joel's call to just continue encouraging the church in the area of evangelism, could you guys maybe, uh, maybe Joel and Tim, give me just a 45-second gospel presentation in light of this shift from Plato to Moses that John brought and that, you know, I've been on this journey for a few years. Maybe what's a 45-second gospel presentation for, let's say, a a college student tonight at the University of Minnesota who's kind of quasi-Christian, maybe kind of a pagan worldview. Could you just give me a minute gospel? On your mark, (laughs) get set, go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created it good. Human beings are jacked it up. Human beings have jacked it up, going to be held to account in the day of wrath. God doesn't want us to suffer his wrath. He wants us to be included in the restoration of all things, the resurrection from the dead, the uh, inheritance of the kingdom of God. He's made a way to, for us to receive the mercy from the, the mess we've caused. It's through the cross. Repent, believe the gospel, and just as Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, you too will be raised from the dead into eternal life. You too will inherit a kingdom. Don't repent. You'll be raised from the dead in the resurrection of the wicked and thrown to the lake of fire. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm I'm not going to try to to do that. You you don't want me to try to do it again. Amen? How about an amen? Yeah, amen. Amen, okay. But that's a huge question, just to affirm you in that, because, you know, you're having that conversation with your friend at Burger King. You can't just kind of sit down and have a two-day seminar. (laughs) So be ready in season to out of season. Let let me just add a little comment on that, though. The... uh, and John may have already talked about this, is what Tim did is he began at the beginning and he worked toward the end. It's a very linear story. It's not just sort of a philosophy that's just floating around. Well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. and you know, it, it, there's, It's a contextualized in history in a very linear fashion, which John has done a good job of pointing out that when you look at the way that the gospel is presented you know, whenever in, in the book of Acts, they tell a story. It's a very linear story. Here's your part in the story. Here's where you fit. Here's what's going to happen to you when the story concludes. And so, you know, it, it's, it's within time. Yeah, Mike, um, both Jeremy and Joel brought up things about politics, and um, Jeremy especially talked about like using politics as self-protection in the United States. Um, given the structure of kind of how things are set up in the U.S. to be kind of a citizen-run kind of government, um, at what point should a citizen stand up, or a Christian, I should say, stand up for his or her rights um, I mean, Christians tend to celebrate guys like Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer who stood up for other people's uh, supposed rights. But um, 
how do we interpret the Bill of Rights, things like that, and stand up for freedoms that are supposed to be given to us too? I'll touch on that. Let me just say this, and uh, I'm going to dance around your question for a second. <clears throat> As a uh, speaker, you know, I get invited to these various conferences and different things, and um, you know, I've found a trending, particularly over the past few years, with since Obama's become president, um, uh, there's almost a frenzied um, spirit within uh, the church to where. It's almost as though, I, I, and I said the spirit of the age, and um, I don't know if that was an accurate uh, term, but within the church there's a spirit now which is very much morphing Americanism with the mandate of the church. And now people would say, well, wait a minute, are you trying to say those two are in conflict? Yes, they are. Now, the American system of government, I think, is probably the best there is until he comes back, but it is still far below uh, an ideal government. I think it's probably the best that you know mankind uh, can set in place because it's intended to be a limited government. Um, but there are things within even the Constitution and in our rights and all this that it's all about our rights. That's in conflict with the gospel. And there are things, you know, that we take for granted, and so we need to be able to define the difference. Now, from an American perspective, you have every right, if a cop comes to your house to seize your gun, to kill him. You have your right as an American to do that. He's violating the Constitution. Do you want to do that as a Christian? Some cop comes, he's being forced to confiscate your weapons or something like that. So we have to, we have to determine where do we stand, and... You know, I mean, you know, well, we're up in here in Minnesota, um, you know, like I'll speak down in Texas. Um, <laughs> it, you know, the, you know the song, um, all hell rain down on you, courtesy of the red, white, and blue, you know, we'll put a boat in your, beep. it's the American way. That's not the gospel. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? But within the church, I mean, they're practically up there singing it from the platform in some segments of the church. So we need to be very clear. We need to really just meditate on what is the gospel? What about my rights and all that rights? Yes, you know, those things are given to you, but do you want to take another person's life and this and that? And also, let me just say this about Wilberforce. Um, by and large, grand successes within the realm of things like what Wilberforce carried out, are anomalies in human history. Um, our emphasis should pri primarily be on the, the micro rather than the macro. On the, so, like, just as an example, our emphasis should be on freeing individuals rather than the idea of ending slavery worldwide, human trafficking. Our emphasis in the Middle East should be on bringing reconciliation between Arab believers and Jewish believers, individuals. But it doesn't mean we're going to bring comprehensive regional peace. Now, the, the cultural engaged folks will say, see, you don't believe that you can have regional peace. That shows that you're at abandonment. No. Our emphasis is usually going to be on the micro level. These people, you know, the folks that succeed on a macro, like what Wilberforce did, he got slavery to be abolished. 
it, that's wonderful. It's okay to shoot high. As long as we understand that those successes, by and large, are anomalies, and ultimately Jesus is going to be the, the one that's going to have all the massive victories. And so our, I just think our emphasis, by and large, should be on one at a time, one at a time. And um, what was the other one you mentioned, Wilberforce? and Yeah, Bonhoeffer. And again, now my perspective too, and I'll just throw this out for what it's worth, my two cents. I am, uh, the Lord has given me the, the freedom to turn my other cheek uh, and defer justice unto the day of the Lord. And this is, again, my perspective. But if, some, if a wolf is coming into my house to kill my sheep, I'm going to kill the wolf and not feel bad about it one bit. My job is to guard the sheep. And so, you know, you can extend that. Otherwise, it's sinful to be a cop. It's sinful to be in the military. And I don't believe that's, that's true. So anyway, for what it's worth. And uh, from my perspective, I guess my main issue with the political realm when I bring things up is for years and years and years, you could almost stake in the ground for most of the church that Republican equals Christian. And... God graciously is removing that veneer in this day, and he's showing the equal corruption of Republican and Democrat, right? So my issue is when we take up politics to protect ourselves in the name of our values and our philosophy, we're, we're, we're trumpeting our American way, and it completely shadows, outshadows the gospel. And... Politics should not be the first thing on our lips or the first thing on our mind. And it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be there at all. But just when politics obscures the face of Jesus in the gospel and you're not bearing yourself before the world as a weak person that loves them enough to want to win them to the gospel and we use politics as weapons. I've got a relative. I'm, I'm sad uh, for the continual use of political language at times. And it, it grieves me when I see people using a political language to kind of almost slap a stick in the face of the world and say, see, this is biblical values and you're not living it. We need to protect our country and, and hold to our biblical values. Well, our biblical values are self-sacrifice, in essence. And politics can kind of shield us from the call to self-sacrifice. So that's what I'm getting at. It's one thing to pray from your president from a posture of, that dude's wicked and deserves a lake of fire. Versus, man, if I were in that position, I, I, I am so wicked <laughs> that I probably would be bombing, I'd be flying airplanes into buildings you know, if you get the right combination of family brokenness, your own depravity, mixed with a few demons in there, together with, you know, a few bad sermons. <laughs> and you realize, my, I, I'm the guy. <laughs> and you pray from that posture, and, and that's, uh, it's, it's, so it has significant implications. All right, um, next question. I just want to add a quick thing to that. In, in, in regards to the hope of the day of the Lord and, and our eyes remaining fixed completely, um, Isaiah 42 would probably be the main text we'd agree on that in the call of Maranatha, in seeing the justice problems on the earth and wondering about our rights and 
working our way through all of these types of things we have to. Behold, my servant is the cry of God to look at Jesus and fix our hope completely on Him. And I'll just say, read through that on your own, but it's a uh, huge text, 42, 1 through 4. It's all about, He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until He has established justice in the earth. And when we groan for that day and that true justice, then things come much more into perspective. All right, next question. Okay. Um, I wrote down a question here. It says, how should we frame conversations about spiritual warfare in light of John's message from yesterday and Thursday on Plato and Moses um, basically concerning like the different realms. Um, for instance, I do a lot of deliverance and inner healing, and a lot of times people ask me, you know, what about demons and what realm are they in? And in light of Ephesians 6, like, what would be some vocabulary to frame talking about a spiritual realm? Or um, does that make sense? Well, I would just say, first of all, that the, the word realm or places is added in the, in the Greek. It's not from the Greek. It's italicized. So that's the first thing to understand is that there's not like this mysterious realm of the supernatural. Supernatural is not the word of the Bible. So, again, it's like John's diagram of the heavens and the earth and God interacting within. And even God having a council and sending evil spirits to bid his will in, in the earth. So the spiritual warfare aspect is just the fact that, yeah, there are powerful spirits, a hierarchy even of demonic angels, and they're not nice. And they play upon our lusts on the inside. And when we give way to the devil, we give a geographical region in our life a place to the devil, he will literally send his demons and they will take on a strengthening of that wickedness in our life. So how we wage war best is, again, to come back to the cross because, like I said in the message today, the, the cross stripped the powers of principalities. Jesus triumphed over them gloriously. And the same thing is going to happen with us in this age is that the cross is working in us to strip down our wickedness and strip us down of self-righteousness to where Jesus can deliver us from the, the wicked spirits of this age. I was thinking uh, Colossians chapter 1. It's kind of the, the description of what's within the heavens and the earth. Kind of biblical, using more of a biblical language for these things. But Colossians chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, beginning in verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens... And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so just using biblical language, visible and invisible, Apostle Paul used it that way rather than natural, supernatural, material, immaterial. And I just... Uh you know, we do need clarity on a, a cross-based spiritual warfare. Yeah. 
you know, that demons don't really tremble much when I just start yelling at them. Do <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or they, they, they don't just start yell. they just don't start, they don't tremble when, um, you know, some of the other things we can, that, that we can do. But when God looks at a Job and says, oh, my servant, and the devil comes in with his accusation, and somehow, by the very mercy of God, the man holds on to the living God in the end, in his faith that one day there will be one who stands on the earth, and in the end he'll see, in his flesh he'll see God. Hmm. And the devil, you know, the devil, it says that he held in slavery those, uh, that we were held in slavery by him who had the power of death, the devil. Well, the, what, is the, what does that actually mean? What power does the de devil actually have over death? And the, the, de the only real connection that the devil has is what he do actually does. His function is to accuse. He's an accuser, right? He accuses us. And you know what? When he comes in with his accusation, a lot of times he's right. I'm not fit to live. <laughs> I do deserve the lake of fire. I don't deserve God's attention. But praise be to God in Christ Jesus, my Lord, that an atonement has been made, and the one who created us both, you slanderer, has redeemed me. And he has provided a means by which the very grounds by which I'm being accused has been removed. And if God has had mercy on me, what can he do to me? Because God's in charge of it all, because he's the only creator. See what I'm saying? And so you have a grid for understanding the disarming of the powers in the same way that Jesus is, the powers were disarmed. They threw everything they had at the Christ. They threw everything at him. And he still trusted himself to the Father, and he came up from the dead on the third day. He had eyes for one. He had eyes for one. And in the same way, when we are being afflicted and oppressed, and the devil is just trying to get that hook into your flesh, and you hit the face and you say, my God, unless, unless your spirit breathes in me right now, I will not be able to make it. And then suddenly those groans come from the Holy Spirit and you feel the living God pick you up and say, you know what, I don't deserve, I don't deserve to inherit eternal life, but he comes in with his strength and you suddenly feel a power and you're like, I will not look at that woman and take her physical body into my mind and manipulate it in lust in a way that displeases the one who will judge that thought. See what I'm saying? And so he comes in and he gives you grace to resist. And then there have been so many times when I personally have gone through just massive times of affliction, affliction. No! Psalm 27. To the, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I put my faith in the restoration of all things. I put my faith in the day of the Lord. I put my faith in the work of the cross. Now strengthen me, O God, for I know I don't deserve that. I don't deserve an inheritance, but strengthen me and save me from my accuser right now. And I can't tell you how many times you get on your face and start crying out in that place. And that's the Spirit of God comes in and quickens it. And, and, and you feel strength and, you, and, and the tears will flow and, you'll re and, and in the end, you come away both with a deeper sense of your depravity and how you've been saved from it, but also cleansed. And so you end up coming out of that process 
with a, a merciful outlook and disposition towards others who are, in the, who are also being afflicted by demons, but also cleansed <laughs> and with a deeper hatred for sin. And so, so that's, we just need to, we need to take spiritual warfare and anchor it in a biblical worldview in such a way that makes sense of our experience in light of the way Jesus, Jesus, the powers were disarmed in his own life in context to his sufferings. When he persevered through them in faithfulness to the Father, then he was vindicated. The same way with us. We go through trials and see the similar kinds of things, and then our ultimate vindication is in the day. And then the devil, of course, is condemned, and angels are even brought before us, and we join with Jesus in passing the, the verdict. Next question. Well, yeah, one thing oh, to add on, on, a, on a personal level, for me, especially dealing with kind of strongholds of the mind and things like that in spiritual warfare, when I, those years when I told my testimony today that I lived in darkness, when I did finally turn to the Lord, you know, here it is six years later, um, it took, I went through pure heart, I did these programs and no matter what I did, when I came before the Lord, I did not feel pure. It doesn't matter, it didn't matter what demon I was delivered of or what they told me until one night God Himself spoke to my heart and said, You, he, I had a, this picture of the cross and I was hanging behind Jesus on His cross. And He said, and he just said, you are as pure as the water that flows from my throne because of this blood. And that, from that night forward, I was, I was set free. And so when dealing with these things that are eternally hard to deal with and people that have been abused and molested, when we, it, it has to be turned towards the cross always. And until God speaks to that person, they really will not be set free no matter what we try to deliver them of. Does that make sense? It has to be his mouth. <laughs> Are we good? Uh, so just, I just Jimmy. just add to, oh, to, to that also. Primarily, the issue of warfare within the scripture has to do with walking on a narrow path. The issue of your sojourning as a pilgrim and inheriting uh, inheritance on that day. So it's not just this geographical territorial battle, whether on a personal level or bigger. It, it really, the, what, they, the, what the demons are trying to do is dislodge you from your faith and your walk with the Lord. That's, just to throw, put that in there. Yeah. So, uh, so just since I was, you know, I thought I would jump in and we all have strong opinions hey, on spiritual warfare. there he is. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I was talking with a brother uh, yesterday and, and we were talking about healing and, and, uh, and it, you know, I was just, I was telling him, it's kind of the same dynamic of, of deliverance ministry of somebody gets healed and, you know, there's inherently, there has to be an explanation for the person getting healed. So just getting healed in and of itself doesn't mean anything. It just means I was sick and now I'm not. So what ends up happening is you as the, as the, as the you know conduit of the gift of the Holy Spirit have to give meaning context as a witness. So usually just is common the base level it means you got healed, it means God is real. Or maybe a little deeper, God likes you rather than hates you. 
or a little bit deeper and you start to build a theology around it, God has manifest his kingdom and, and now he's bringing his rule to, to, to bear on your life or something like that. And so whatever happens, if you give a bad context that doesn't, isn't actually true to reality, that's the degree to which you're a witness in the situation. So you might as well just give a broad witness from creation to consummation that this is what your healing means in context to you weren't created for sickness, you weren't created to be demonized, and you won't be demonized in the end, you won't be sick in the end, and God likes you and loves you even though you're a sinner, and he did this for you to save you from the wrath of God and these kinds of things. And so in that context, you know, the, the person was, was demonized, if, they, if the demon's driven out, if you don't give a context to give them perseverance, seven more demons are going to come in. They're going to be thrown in a lake of fire, and they're going to have demons the rest of eternity. So the same way with healing. You don't give a context for the healing. They just get sick again and die at some point. Everybody's going to die. Everyone. So your p purpose as in deliverance ministry is ultimately as, as a witness anyway. But then we get the, the, the deeper problem of, what is, what's the story being played and in the New Testament? All the spiritual warfare passages are primarily about the issue of the cross. And so 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare for demolishing strongholds is in context to the circumcision group in, in chapter 11, the next chapter. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. But they're false apostles. They're preaching a false gospel. They're perverting you, and on that day, you're actually going to be held, your, your, your sins aren't going to be acquitted, they're going to bear on you. And so the whole point of the warfare in his mind is in relation to how do you actually get people saved, Acts 15. Unless they obey the law of Moses, they're not going to be saved. And Paul says, no, it's by grace that we're saved as a free gift. And so the issue of warfare comes down to what locks in people's minds of how am I going to stand righteous before God on that day? And then you get the same thing in Galatians 1. You got demons appearing to people as angels giving another gospel saying you'll be saved by on the basis of your works rather than on the basis of grace. Which is the same thing in, second, in, in Colossians 2 where he you know, made a spectacle of the powers and principalities by nailing them to the cross and the written code and salvation by works. Therefore, don't let the circumcision group judge you by obeying, you know, by Sabbath or what you eat. Or, and and they, they glory in angelic visitations and stuff. And so the, the heart of spiritual warfare in the New Testament is guys who are having angelic experiences telling them you'll be saved by obeying the law in this way and, and walking according to the law. And so I just want to say that to say spiritual warfare was a different game in the New Testament than what we're used to in charismatic circles. And our goal as witnesses anyway is to, to give the, the broader context to what's happening. That's good. All right. <clears throat> Another question. Anyone else? Can I ask a question? I want to ask uh, Jacob a question. Or, or just, I want you to tell me what you think. Um, in terms of the uh, 
in terms of the you know broad historical call on the you know us dummy Gentiles to provoke Israel, it's pretty clear that um, we've done a really poor job. And um, if anything, we've probably driven them away uh, from the gospel through our actions. Um, in light of uh, my heart for the Muslim nations, which are you know um, sort of the final frontier of global missions, the most unreached, by and large unmissionized uh, group, and also those that are um, most closely related, uh, I mean, at least the initial, you know, the Arabs themselves to the Jewish people within the whole biblical history. Do you think, and again, this is probably a, do you think it's fair to say that in the Lord's grand eschatological scheme that the, um, the children of Ishmael may be the key to um, fulfilling that call of the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Have you ever pondered on that one? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, well, usually the, the idea of provocation being taught right now is that the answer to Israel is the church provoking positively but when you really when you really study Romans 10 and Romans 11 can you define more okay. what positively yeah, means please help me with this uh, so somehow whether it be through more something more impressive that we're going to attract them to Jesus by becoming impressive whether it be signs and wonders or love or anything. Um, but when you really pin down Romans 11 and Romans 10 to the Song of Moses, which he actually quotes in Romans 10, 10 19, it's very negative. It's a very negative issue. It's a controversy. You provoked me with your idols. You provoked me to anger by no God. So I am provoking you. It's back. It's a reciprocated. So I am provoking you with a no people, a no God, and a no people. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's reciprocated. And so, why is it negative? It's in the context of rejection of the gospel. It's like stepping in. It's like, it's like a stiff neck. It's in the context of the actual rejection and a willingness. Paul's willingness in Romans 11 uh, I think 14, he says, I am willing to magnify my ministry among the Gentiles before the Jews in order to provoke them. He uses that word, which is parazelu. That word is negative. It's, it's to excite, to rivalry. You look at Paul in the book of Acts. Every time he did this, it was, he, almost, he would get stoned. It was not a positive thing because essentially our inclusion to the faith is a testimony of the gospel and is a testimony of rejection of Messiah. That's what he's pressing. Rather than a testimony of us, like they're not going to stand before the Lord on that day because of us. They're going to stand before the Lord because of the rejection of the cross. And so what are we embodying as, Gentile, as Gentiles? The free gift of righteousness. The free gift of righteousness. So... However that plays, whether it be through Arabs or through 
That's the issue is that God is pressing. And we find it in the, in the prophets, you know, Isaiah 28, where it talks about those who come as a witness with stammering lips and a foreign tongue, referencing Gentiles. The witness is rejected, it says. It says it's rejected. And so essentially we're giving a witness before the day of Jacob's trouble that's primarily going to be rejected. And it's a negative, controversial, covenantal-oriented witness that produces something at the, at, during Jacob's trouble where they actually see it as a working out of covenant. Does that make sense? So rather than saying that it's a... It's a we are the answer as a church, whether it be this group or that group, or the Koreans or the Chinese or the Arabs or any, anybody. I think it's really the issue of the gospel and how we can magnify the issue of his son. And that's where the word parazelu, provocation, comes in as a theology. That's why the, I tie it in with the stone which the builders rejected as it's just projected in this whole issue. I would add to that that when, when we follow the end game of kingdom now, in, inherently you affect Israel, okay? And so when, when you get Romans 11, God is shut up all in disobedience that He may show mercy to all. When we talk about negative provocation, and when we look at Israel and realize that there are Tons of ministries in the land right now that are not bringing Jews to salvation. There are many who are saying, become more Jewish. So this is a positive provocation. If you become more Jewish, if you start practicing Sabbath, stop eating pork, do the things that the, that the council in Jerusalem totally refuted, right? So if, if you do these things, you'll be more palatable for the Jews. And then... They'll be provoked to want your Messiah. Or, if we pray long enough, revival's going to come to the Gentiles, and then Israel's going to go, oh, we want that revival. And then they'll repent and come to Messiah. But the issue with that is that you're saying, look at the church and what we're doing. Aren't we so good? Look, don't we look like Jesus? And they're going, no, you don't look anything like our Messiah. And so the issue is we magnify Christ crucified and say, this is the wisdom of God. And we give our lives, what? For the Jews in martyrdom and say, look, this is the wisdom of God. And they say, and they're provoked to jealousy because you say, look, I have the testimony of the Holy Spirit. I have the seal of the resurrection in my body. I'm praying in tongues. And they say, no. And they stone you and you go to death saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The witness will be rejected but the negative provocation is only unto the glorification of Christ crucified. It has to be centered in that or we're boasting against the root. We're boasting in ourselves and what the church can do, which is just ridiculous. And Israel does not get saved by the church. Israel gets saved at the coming of the Lord. And so, you know, I mean, if we anchor it at the day of the Lord, you can't say it's through something of the church. I mean, we are witness... He uses that witness, but it comes when they look upon the one whom they have pierced. The Lord himself will save Israel on that day. You had a question first. I'm going to take his question, and then we can go there. 
Right. You've just used the term the time of Jacob's trouble a couple of times. I'm not sure how familiar people are with that. Could you just outline what you mean by that and its significance? Oh, did I use it? Um, well, Jimmy's used it a couple Jake times. I don't know if you I'll let, I'll used let, it. I'll let Jacob well, take this. <laughs> well, it's referencing Jeremiah 30. Uh, I'll read it to you. But it's the... It's the word that we, use, we often use within the church. It's verse 7. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is a time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble. And it's the culmination of what, what is spoken at, you know, through Moses that this curse would... Com- you know, in Leviticus 26, it says, if you don't repent when the curses come upon you, I would do it seven times more. And if you don't repent, I would do it seven times more. Seven is completion. It's the uttermost. And so until, until their strength is reduced to nothing, that's when they're going to look upon him. And so that's when we use the word, you know, the phrase Jacob's trouble, we're, we're really talking about the, the, the last days, the escalation, the last three and a half years of, of history that will produce that cry and that looking upon the one whom they have pierced uh, event will circumcise the heart of the nation. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to add to the last, just before that guy, what you were talking about, the jealousy thing. And, and you, you, I mean, you're so right, but to, to kind of understand a little bit better even, it's, it's the issue of driving the, the Jew to jealousy. And the Gentile church, first I'll make this statement, so we can actually end up breaking and hurting our witness by somehow you know becoming more jewish we're losing our leverage the very point of driving them to jealousy is that these unkosher gentiles are getting something for free and they're not earning their way to it which is the very point that god is trying to bring home with the jew is you can't earn this it's impossible you wouldn't be able to anyways unless of course you have a righteousness that's not yours that's all we have is right. But the point is, what makes the Great Tribulation, Jacob's Trouble, any different from any previous suffering? I mean, man, we, don't, we have to admit the church was never there. In fact, if anything, the church was probably the result of much of Jewish suffering throughout the last 2,000 years. The Catholic Church, pogroms, the... the we man. provoke negatively, but not rightly. And yeah. if anything, we've because made we're it included worse. with them, we would not act, you know... That but way, I, I wanted to make just one people. statement. What makes that last one, the one where they finally look upon the one whom they have pierced, well, obviously it is the coming of the Messiah, but it was that last three and a half year Jacob's trouble where we go through it with them. What makes it different is the presence of a prophetic church, someone said to me. The presence of a church who goes through it with them, not kosher Jew people, just they go through it with them, suffer with them, but says... Your Messiah will come. They don't believe you. They, they spit in your face. They're, they're going to they're gonna come to you because you're the only one who's not trying to kill them. But they're not going to believe you. They're going to think you're nuts. They're going to think you're crazy, but you're the only one with food and safety. But when we're taken up to meet the Lord in the air and they see that, that'll melt them all. Um, so my question is um, geared towards the talk on self-denial and martyrdom, and it has um, geared towards suffering and Christian suffering. 
Um, because in the scripture, um, you see all throughout the New Testament, Paul, um, he's consistently mentioning or making reference to some kind of suffering. Either he's suffering, you can see it in the way he writes, or he actually talks about suffering. And um, I guess my question would be, um, in America, it's very easy to not suffer. Um, It's actually to fall in a cycle of just easy Christianity is, is almost, it's, at least everyone falls in it if you live in the West at least once. So I guess my question is, um, how can we evaluate ourselves through scripture, um, our state, and how we should be suffering? Because sometimes I, I feel convicted a lot in the sense of I, I'm not suffering enough. Um, this is really easy, and it shouldn't be. And yes, practicing self-denial is a form of suffering because you're denying yourself. But um, when I read in the scriptures, it's more than just denying yourself. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. But um, how can I use the Bible as a a mirror to see myself and kind of evaluate where I am and how I should be suffering for the sake of the gospel? Um. I'll I'll talk a little bit about some of the aspects of what you were just saying that I that I was hearing. Maybe not all of them, but uh, I'll zero in on the thing that kind of came to me first when you started sharing your question. Um, Revelation three, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write: These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, and so here's, obviously their condition is something Jesus sees as needing remedy. Well, let's see what is the thought process, you know, the (laughs) self-talk, what's happening that's leading to the lukewarmness. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Okay, so there's, Something here with their, their, their wealth that's blinding them, them to the true reality of their own need. But you do not realize, so Jesus comes in with reality, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Can you, I guarantee there was some umph, <laughs> a little more than I'm, you know. But you, do, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. But he doesn't leave it there. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And he's meaning there, gold refined in the fire means the cross so that you can can become rich in the age to come. Okay? Now, so here's the... and, And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes... So you can see, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So the question is, there's a similar situation that most of us probably can relate to in our own lives. Um, at some point, you know, being a part of probably the wealthiest nation that's ever existed on the earth as Americans. And, and say, okay, step one, I've got I've to repent and acknowledge my blindness. 
That's the first thing he says. And he says, here I am, I'm standing at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What I have found is when the Lord begins to speak to us like this, like, I want you to understand the cross, and I've got to show you what you're actually forgiven of. <laughs> and I've got to show you, you know, your, the true depth of your wretchedness. And it's painful. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goodness, it's painful. Mm -hmm. But it's clean. But it's clean. And what I have found is, as we repent and are crying out to him in repentance, he's standing at the door, he's knocking. He'll find ways, if you're asking to be, oh, that I would know the fellowship of sufferings, that I might also share in his glory. If you begin to cry for oneness with Christ now, that you might receive oneness with him in the age to come. Fellowship of sufferings now, so that you can have fellowship with, of glory with him. That I guarantee, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. That's his advice. That translates into, God, make me like you. Jesus, help me to carry my cross, conforming to your image. He, even if you're in America, he has a plan for your life. <laughs> That's the point. And he can work the scenarios perfectly so that you're getting a good dose of Christ crucified in there, even if you're not in the middle of China in prison for 20 years. So, I'll, you know, for example, most of, a lot of times, I mean, Henry and I, we were, uh, we were, we were in downtown Minneapolis for six months in a community. The Holy Spirit did a lot of things and put us all into this little house. We had two families in a house, and, an, and another single woman, and the house was full. We got together for prayer meetings every morning and, you know, get a cup of coffee and, Lord, you know, just kind of do this kind of thing. And then, then you know, you've got human beings co-located. That means pressure. <laughs> that means testing. That means in the morning you're crying out for grace, and at night you're repenting. <laughs> and then the next morning you do it all over again for six months. And we come out loving each other, and we're not posturing to try to impress each other with our awesomeness anymore. And just genuine, genuine love for one another. And the Lord sovereignly orchestrated that. I mean, I could tell you the story of how that whole thing came together. And I guarantee one of us prayed this crazy prayer at one time, God, give me gold refined in the fire <laughs> in light of the age to come. And the Lord worked it out. He might bring a little fire to your finances. He might bring a little fire, you know. I don't deserve sleep. I deserve a lake of fire. I don't really need sleep. I mean, I don't deserve sleep. I like sleep. But you know when those te babies' teeth start coming in? <laughs> and three nights go on and suddenly... <gasps> Just sleep! Just sleep! Ah! And, you start thinking, and then you start realizing something's manifesting. Oh, yeah. God, and you're accusing God. Because you know he could just one little touch of his finger, he could make that baby sleep, sleep, sleep. And he's, you know, you know, trust me, ask for him for gold refined in the fire. And he's really good at creating the scenarios. Bro, can and you then, tell your, tell your the, the dog? The, is that a good one for the public audience? I don't know. The day oh. you were going to be interviewed by Glenn Beck. I mean, this is a good one. This, 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 we need a little light. This lighten up. The, <laughs> I was like, the dog, I tell it, man. The dog. This is hilarious. I love it. I, I was just going to add to his, though, first, though, is that there's this adorable little baby, and it's 3.30, and they're looking at you, and they're smiling. They're like, hey, 
And you're like, no! Go to sleep! And they're like, huh? Huh? You know, and you're like, no, it's at 3.30! But, um... So, uh... The dog story. Okay, so... Uh, I, you know, I get a call, hey, um, you, you want to be on the Glenn Beck show tomorrow on Fox News, you know, prime time. And I was like, well, sure. Talk about the Antichrist. I was like, let's do it. <laughs> so, um, so I said, okay, so they're going to fly me from my home city to uh, New York City. And, um, and so they send a, a limo. I mean, it's just a, you know, it's just a car to pick me up at my house at 5 in the morning to take me to the airport. Well, my stupid dogs... Uh, it was raining, and so usually I let them out, and, and you know, 15 minutes later they, they, they want to come back in. Well, I let them out, and they wouldn't come back in, and the car's out front, and I'm like, you know, and they're just like, it's time to play. I'm like, you idiots, you idiots. And uh, so I'm like, come on, you know, I don't want to wake up my family and everything. So I go out, and I get them, and I bring them in, and then um, I hop in the car, and I'm like, man, I, I smell dog crap. And, uh, and you know, I'm, you know, I got my suit on, I'm ready to go. And so I'm like, gosh, you know, and so I get to the airport, and I'm like, did I step? I'm like, those stupid dogs. And so I kind of, like, found a little bit on my shoe. I'm like, ah, oh, sure enough, you know, I kind of wipe it off. And then I get to New York City, and just, you know, it was a long day before I was actually on that evening. And I'm just like, I just, I stink like dog crap. <laughs> like, I really, you know, I'm like, this is just disgusting. And I'm sitting down with, like, the producer, I mean, I don't know, she was probably like this 25-year-old intern or something. She's like asking me all these questions. I'm just like, I'm so uncomfortable. I'm like, man, I'm really sorry. She's like, don't worry about it. I'm like, but I, she, she acknowledged it. She acknowledged it. <laughs> she noticed that I smell like dog crap. And I'm just like, I don't know what. You know, I'm like making it. I'm like, I don't know, you know, what do you say? And so, you know, I get on Fox and here, you know, it's just this surreal experience. And, you know, there it is. And, and uh you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at the camera and, you know, a couple million people, prime time. This is like Fox News. I'm talking about the Antichrist and I do the whole thing. And then, you know, the show's over and, uh, and I can hear him in the earpiece. They're like, okay, Joel, you're all done. You can, you can leave. I'm like, I just leave. I just walk out. You know, and Glenn's like, all right, God bless you. Hey, it was great. You know, and I walk out and, um, and I fly home. And I'm just like, did that just happen? Like, you know, and, uh, and so I, I'm trying to figure when I when I finally discovered it. It might, it might have been when I got home. And, but anyway, you know, so it was just, it was so embarrassing because it was noticeable. Well, I get home, and sure enough, it was like at this angle. I'm like, there it is. There it is. And so, you know, there's just like this huge uh, chunk under my shoe. But so it was just like, it was just so funny because here I have the opportunity to, um, to you know, be on primetime TV and everything. And it was just like just knowing that all those people there were like, that was, the, that, that Joel Richardson, you know, like, you know, he did a good job, but he smelled. <laughs> he smelled, you know. And so I just always have that. So anyway, yeah, the Lord, has, the Lord has a way of, fire. Hum, of humbling us. Little things that over time <laughs> forge you into the image of Christ. <laughs> yeah, but it was, you're just kind of, oh, well, I'll probably never see him again. Okay, one more over here. Oh, you had something you were to share. Okay, go ahead. Real, real quick, just Second uh, um, Timothy three twelve. You know, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's kind of like a fan jumping out of the left field stands and ending up on the baseball field for our paradigm, right? It's like, where in the world did that come from? 
in our culture. Peter is great at laying it out in Second Peter 1, where he says, add to your faith knowledge, and he goes on this progression, add your faith knowledge, and to knowledge diligence, or add, applying diligence to your faith, add moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, in your perseverance, godliness, number six, of this adding to your faith, of really digging in to what's the foundation of our faith. It's number six of this progression. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, the common interest with each, other's, with each other, love. And then he exhorts in light of the coming kingdom to not lose sight of your former sins. And God's preparing Peter to die. And Peter ends it with, and the Lord showed me it's about time to give up this tent and to be with him. It's this process of really engaging with the Lord in this precious faith that we have through the blood and step by step engaging it to the point where we're walking in the fear of the Lord and godliness and it's going to incur persecution. And that's the process of you know, self-denial. So I think that's part of it. Yes, ma'am. Uh, the word repentance is being used a lot during this time that you guys are together, and I'd like to offer this question to all of you, but I'd like Jeremy Johnson to be the first to respond to it. What is true repentance? Well, repentance, when we, we think of um, the New Testament, the first thing we think of is a change of mind because the Greek word is metanoia, to change your mind. But again, the New Testament is written in Greek language by Hebrew people, to a Hebrew people mostly. So you got to think Old Testament when you come to the New of how they thought. And Old Testament repentance was kind of this pig pen of the prodigal coming to their senses, recognizing what they've squandered in light of their father being who he really is, coming to your senses, deciding you're going to go back home to what you were made for, the design that God made you for, and when he's coming down that road to see the father, the prodigal son, the father's running to him. There was one reason that men ran in that culture in that day, and that was to go to war, to go to battle. So picture the son seeing his father running to him, and he starts to kiss his neck. Repentance is coming to term with this reality that we are completely under the wrath of God by our breaking away from His design, being crushed by that, and thus God comes near to us to meet us in that place of turning to Him. So it is a turning of life, it's a changing of mind, but it's a coming back under God's design through discipline and, and loving and delighting in His ways and correcting us, loving us. I love a lot of the Old Testament pictures that come with repentance because uh, it actually give con it does give context to what change of mind actually means. It's you know you you it's it's all covenant covenantal based, if you will. You're like I need to change my mind because I'm going to be held accountable for this in the day of the Lord. And it does you know I, I've heard 
I've heard a number of people preach sermons like repentance doesn't actually mean things like acknowledging your sin, <laughs> that you did something wrong. I'm like, that's crazy. Because, uh, you know, you read throughout the Old Testament. For example, let's just give uh, Ezekiel 18. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. This is 1830. I will judge you. Each one, according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. I'm going to judge you. Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. So change your mind about your relationship to sin because you're going to be judged and held accountable for it. So stop it. It's kind of the idea. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So... Um, so there, I think there is this fundamental reality of the day of the Lord's coming. I'm going to be held accountable for what's happening in here. And I need to come into the light and acknowledge it and change the way I relate to it. And then the fruit of that is I stop it. Not by my own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working on the inside, of course. You know, we, we need his strength to do that. And I love other images like break up your unplowed ground. Sow for yourselves the seed of unfailing love. I love that picture of like, I've got a, I've got a, a, a heart that's unplowed. And I gotta, I've got to chop, I've got to do some work to get that thing. You know, my part is I want to, I, when he shows me my sin, I want to repent and acknowledge it. And let every stone he's turning, breaking it up, breaking it up, breaking it up. And as, as I'm doing that, he's sowing seeds of love and, and joy and peace and kindness in me that over time will water and bear fruit. So I, 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 I there, there you have, that, that's kind of where I would go with repentance there. Yeah, just to uh, quote our good friend Bill Schofield, in regards to repentance, he, um, he said to me one time, when we, when we sin, we say no to ourselves by denying self-pity which is kind of the end of repentance. We, d we say no to ourselves by denying self-pity. It often seem seems more noble to engage in self-pity, but it is the very same boasting that must be humiliated if we are to only boast in the cross alone. Because self-pity still assumes my ability and my own awesomeness to free myself from sin. When we look at repentance, I think Philippians 3 just immediately came to mind, it's completely turning from self-righteousness. We engage in sin, and then we, if we engage in self-pity, it's like, I should have been able to deliver myself from that, right? That, that's boasting in something other than the cross, okay? That's boasting in, I should have been able to do this. If I had just done this, I wouldn't have sinned, right? That's boasting in something other than the cross, and Paul kind of goes through, he's like, look, everything that I used to boast in, everything, I've counted it all lost for the sake of Christ. And he takes it down to that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So he takes it to the day of the Lord. He's saying, I repent of my self-righteousness. I count it all a loss for the sake of Christ. I receive His atoning blood alone that I would be resurrected on that day. And so, in the full encapsulating picture, it's completely turning from the self-righteousness that's ever present rather than 
just these kind of sins we think we engage in. So, Richie, I think saying we have 15 minutes? Okay. Okay. Richie's back there doing somersaults trying to get through to me like, I'm like what are you saying, man? So 50, 50 more minutes? 15. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we got questions. We have a question here. All right. Well, I was looking at Galatians um, chapter 3, um, verse um, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, in, in Jacob, it just seems to me that that's going to be accomplished at Christ's second coming rather than now. What verse are you looking at? Oh, I look at verse 28. And then 29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So wouldn't that provoke the Jews to jealousy that we as Gentiles can claim that we are Abraham's seed? We are Abraham's seed uh, by faith, but we are not Jews. Um, but that needs, and we're not Israel either. Exactly. Yeah. It's so, okay. Well, so. when you when it says that uh, in Christ we're neither Jew nor Greek, and yet now in this day we feel so separated from the Jews. So that's why I'm asking: Will, will that be completed? Where I, we don't, we don't, won't become. Jews and they won't become Gentiles, but will we all be one in Christ's second coming rather than now in, new, in the new covenant? There's no distinction in terms of righteousness and salvation by faith, but there is distinction in terms of um, to them belongs the covenants. We're coming into it, but there's still a calling on the Jewish people and the Jewish nation that is not really ours. Um, their firstborn calling as a nation. Do you want to add anything? Oh, there is a teaching on DTN uh, by John on primogeniture, which has to do with the firstborn, the specific calling as a firstborn to administer the resurrection, to administer the glory of the age to come. So they have similar promises, but also distinctions in their functions based on, you know, the, the, first, the firstborn has a certain job to do. The other kids have jobs to do. And um, <clears throat> so they're, they're one in Christ. They receive, they receive the promises, but they also have distinctions in terms of some of their functions and, and calling. That, did that answer the question that was really burning on your heart? Oh, okay. You have anything else? Sheila, were, were you, th you were asking specifically, is this talking about the age to come, right? And Jimmy mentioned it's talking about you know, specifically faith. Like there's no distinction. All are under sin, you know, like Romans 3 says. So then there's no distinction. There's no superiority in righteousness for the Jews is what he's really getting at. Because the Jews were trying to get Gentiles to think they had to be Jews to be qualified to be pleasing to God. So that's what he's, he's saying, a present tense, no distinction. And that's where people will say, they'll take that one and say, see, the Jews don't, Israel doesn't even matter. But that's not his point. So yeah, it's a present tense faith issue of where righteousness comes from. Yeah, I mean, of course, there are still, uh, <clears throat> there's still a clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles. 
Um, is, it, is that the exact one? I mean, it also says there's neither, neither male nor female, which in popular culture is beginning to become the case, but skinny, <laughs> skinny pants. No, no, but um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> skinny jeans. Um, but, you know, obviously there is male and female, and, and likewise there's obviously still Jew and Gentile. So. Okay, Omar. Hey, I'll just have a quick question. Um, many of us are involved with, let's just say we have different circles of friends or people that are, let's just say, in different streams is a new word is now, you know, and you see right now a movement of just people want to bring these together, you know what I mean, like the prophetic with the missions guys, with, you know, all these things around and the, I mean, whatever, but what is... I'm in some of them, so it's like I hang out, you know, I know these folks, solid, you know, beautiful, but there is a lack of, like, a cross-centric theology and a Israel theology, and that's where I'm just like, bro, you're wrong, like, this is not where we should go, it's not just, right, we know, it's not signs and wonders, not just about missions, missions, uh, but, like, a high value of the sovereignty of God and a high value of the cross and all those things. Now, how do we relate to people like that? How would you guys, now, I mean, what's the line that we go, okay, you, now you cross the line. Now we have to address this. And let's just some people are close friends. How, do, how would you guys, if you have friends or, you know, family, whoever, um, do you just cut off, <laughs> you know, friendship? Do you, you know, I, I'm just saying, what is your, how would you approach things like that? Especially in what's going on right now um, with some of the prophetic circles and stuff like that. Cut off friendship, specifically with, with regard to what? I'm sorry. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah, I mean, let's just say um, some, of, some of our friends, you know, they hold a sign. Omar, you've you got to be all about signs. Of, I mean, this is what the Lord's going to do at the end of the age. It's, is he going to show his power at the signs? Of, I'm like, bro, he's going to, like, raise up a martyr witness. You know what I mean? That's, so how do you, like, re-evangelize Christianity? Do you know, do you know what I mean? Right. In, in the context of the circles you're in and friendships. Or, I mean, yeah. I'm just saying, or people that you know. Yeah, whenever possible, it's always best to not break friendships, you know, over theological differences. And, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that people make is, um, I'll just give an example I remember, and, I, you know, I've seen this same mistake made a thousand times, is um, uh, years ago I was in a home group, and uh, this particular couple in the home group uh, suddenly received a revelation of how essential evangelism is. Now, we were this, you know, a uh, group with almost all young couples with little kids. You know, we were like... Most of us are like barely hanging on to survive, you know, and we're just so uh, appreciate being able to get together with other believers and, you know, pray and fellowship and, and study the word a bit together. But there was not a lot of like, you know, going out doing street evangelism. I mean, you know, we're just not in that place, most of us. Well, they received that revelation, and so they declared to the group that, um, you know, that this is so important, and if, if the group doesn't start doing more evangelism, it's going to die. And they're leaving, and um, because we were not doing enough, and so you know the group went on. Um, so they left. The group went on for like another eight, maybe ten, ten years, and then we uh, we we decided to close shop. Um, and so it's just it's so easy for someone suddenly you get a revelation. How come you don't have this revelation? 
you know, the Lord will bring people in, uh, you know, in his timing. And so, you know, you always need to be patient with people because, I mean, what, <laughs> so you get a revelation. What revelation don't I have? <laughs> you know, there's, I've only got this much. There's still this much I don't have. And so um, as much as possible to maintain the, the unity, uh, you know, the spirit. And, and, you know, it's just a matter of being humble and gracious and, and trying to, you know, love people and, and communicate to them why you disagree on particular issues. Now, with regard to where you fellowship, where you go to church, what, who, you know, that might be a different situation, you know. And that's what I was starting to say. This is, I'm just so incredibly blessed um, to be networked and around a lot of these guys. Just such an amazing encouragement when the focus is always about encouraging one another unto the day of the Lord and mutually encouraging one another. Where's Henry? All the more as you see the, as the day approaches. Um, uh, you know, assembling together and encouraging one another unto the day when we will be assembled together with him. And um, but yeah, I mean, as much as possible, you know, you try not to break fellowship. Even but on the other hand, as teachers, there are times when you begin to challenge ideas in the public arena, particularly ideas that are destructive. And many people hold to ideas out of what they think is a good motive. But ultimately, it's a destructive uh, idea, and is particularly when those that are teaching ideas that are destructive are beginning to become aggressive toward the ideas that you're espousing. Do you see what I'm saying? So if you're proclaiming premillennialism and they start saying that's destructive, that it needs to be stood up to. And so, you know, it's, it's, you, know you need to hold firm, but, you know, obviously always in humility. And... <clears throat> You know, Elmer, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about this kind of in where to from here. Because, you know, all of us have kind of felt the tensions of the things you're talking about. And, um, you know, one thing that I found that the Lord's pretty good about doing with me is when I, is tapping me on the shoulder, you know, and I'm feeling the tension, and then he taps me on the shoulder and reminds me kind of where I was like three years ago. And then I, I kind of find that oh, okay, I've got this, zeal, I've got a zeal for truth, and I don't want to let off the, I don't want to let off the gas. I want a zeal for truth, but then, at the same time, the Lord kind of says, hey, little guy, remember, you know, I, I like this sheep, <laughs> and and remember where you were three years ago, and then suddenly I find like oh man, this long suffering kind of mixing in with it somehow. And in the midst of walking with the Holy Spirit, asking, okay, how can I, how can I communicate this in a way that, uh, that somehow brings a zeal for truth together with the long-suffering of the Lord together in a way that ends up uh, edifying as much as... We, and, then, and there are some times where, the Lord, where Paul says, he says, live it as far as is possible with you. <laughs> live at peace with all men. But there are some cases where, you know, no matter what you do, um, it, it, it gets bumpy, but... I love our kind of, the thing we've been praying for grace to grow in the last few days especially is the Second Timothy 2. And I'm going to close with this passage and give us a time to have a break so that the worship team can have some time to kind of do sound checks and all that. But um, this is a powerful passage about a workman approved because that's what all of our hearts desire is to be. We want Jesus to say, I approve you to represent me in your speech, in your doctrine, in your life so that you might save both yourself and your hearers as you're watching over those closely. And he says, uh, 
uh, in chapter 2 here, keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. And again, you know, what, what uh, Joel was saying about having sensitivity about when to warn. What contexts do you warn in? You know, because there's, there's different dynamics in a bigger group setting, uh, interpersonal settings. So kind of having sensitivity to the Holy Spirit about when the warning goes forth. But warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. So that's strong language. This is important stuff, isn't it? Gangrene. Like, you, you want to stop gangrene before it kills you. Okay? So we're not minimizing the importance of the truth and the doctrine here. But their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. And in what way? It's about the issue, some of the issues we've been talking about the last few days, they say that the resurrection has already taken place. They've redefined the resurrection as a spiritual resurrection. They said that it already happened and you weren't there. <laughs> I mean, however you want to say that the resurrection has already placed, if you get away from the fact that the, 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 the resurrection happens at the second coming and it's an actual bodily resurrection of the flesh, then you're wandering from the truth, Paul says. And they destroy the faith of some. Could you imagine? The, you're putting your faith in the resurrection and you're saying that it already happened, but you're still like dinking around with your flu. <laughs> You've got the, you're saying, oh, you know, that's destroying the faith of some. Verse 19, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Let's go down. I'm going to go down to verse 22. It, well, he cries out be, the, in, the, in, in the verses in between. He says, Seek to be a vessel that's holy, that's gotten rid of the junk so that you can be a useful vessel in the Lord's hand. Then verse 22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. I really am not good at that sometimes, but I want to get there, <laughs> okay? I mean, those words, must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, malice toward none, charity for all, even in, their, in our motives, even with people we disagree with, and on important issues. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct. And this all assumes there's opposition, and there's quarrels happening. And how are you responding? And are you responding in a way that embodies the very message that you champion, the cross? Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to, to a knowledge of the truth. That this is such a strong, these are such strong issues that they require repentance. And yet, we're to do it in gentleness and kindness, able to teach, not without a resentful spirit. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. I mean, this is a dance that only the Spirit, I think, can help us do. And God's intentionally designed it to drive us to depend on him, even as we communicate things that are uh, the most important things we need to communicate, uh, that have the, the most significant uh, and weighty implications, um, such as doctrines like the resurrection, the kingdom, and the cross. 
So <clears throat> let's leave it there. On second, let's let Paul's word to us in 2 Timothy 2 be the final word uh, for this session. And I'm just going to pray for us. Uh, let's take a, looks like we've got 25 minutes before we ramp this thing up for prayer. And guys, let's engage tonight. I mean, my goodness, as these guys were sharing, my heart was just like my, I mean, I want to pray for my children to stand firm. I want to pray for my wife to stand firm. I want to be able to surrender the things that are most precious to me, just as God surrendered the thing that was most precious to him. And man, I, I'm not there, folks. I mean, it was hitting me. You know, I, I, I definitely, have, I mean, wow. The le I, need, I feel the Lord provoking me and calling me to a higher level in him in all of this. And so let's really seek him tonight. Father, in Jesus' name, we cry out to you. And we pray, Master, that you would unite our hearts to the cross tonight. As we set our gaze on the day when we see you come in the sky. Oh, Jesus, we just long for this shipwreck of an age to come to an end. And we long for the day when we will sit with you at your feast. And that when the devil's accusations are silenced once and for all. And God, we're not sick anymore. And Lord Jesus, when we can fellowship with one another in truth and transparency and openness without all of the, 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 just all of the barriers. Father, we put our hope fully on the day of your appearing, King Jesus. And we're asking you, God, to begin stirring our hearts. And I ask you even now for angels to be dispatched over the solemn assembly tonight, that there would be tenderness, tenderness, tenderness on our hearts, and that we would pray, Lord God, through the grace and strength of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.